And I invite you to turn again to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. You'll find that on page 906 of the, of the Blue Bible, if that's what you're using. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20. We have uh, been last week in this, in a brief hiatus from our study of 1 Corinthians. We were prompted to that by celebrating Resurrection Sunday last Sunday and just want to finish up that episode and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that we have here. Next week, Lord willing, we will return to 1 Corinthians. John chapter 20, I'm going to read from verses 19 through 23. We'll consider this morning... uh, Verses 21 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Would you join me in just another brief prayer? O Lord, our God, we ask that you would do what only you can do, that by your Spirit this morning you would teach us from your inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. We pray that as you teach us, you would increase our faith and increase our desire and ability to obey what your Word says. We ask, O Lord, that as we hear of your gift of the Spirit today, that we might have the sense that you are amongst us by your Spirit and that we would indeed be informed and transformed, encouraged and equipped for what you have made us to be as the church of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was browsing this week the Wall Street Journal, looking in the opinion columns, and the most interesting thing that grabbed my attention was actually a cartoon. It's probably more an indication of my state of mind this week than the quality of the columns. The cartoon pictured a corporate boardroom. The management team was seated around the table, and a chart was at the front of the room. It was picturing either profits or economic forecasts. The line on the chart was focused decidedly down. Sitting in the chair of the meeting, leading the management team, was a hedgehog. The hedgehog was giving the team his strategic advice for this moment in time. Said the hedgehog, I suggest that we curl up in a tight little ball until the danger is past. You might say that Jesus' disciples had adopted a hedgehog strategy when he came to them on that first evening. His chosen leadership for his church curled up behind closed doors for fear of the hostility to their Lord in their world. And I'd suggest to you that it's not too much of a stretch to see the hedgehog syndrome as a temptation for Christians and the church in what is increasingly described as our post-just-about-everything world, post-modern, post-Western, post-Christian, post-Christian, 
post. And what that language is intended to do is to tell you that the world as you knew it, as you imagined it, or as you wanted it, has changed. It is past. However one defines or describes the culture at present, it seems to be true that it is less and less structured to be sympathetic and supportive of Christian faith in the church. And we can be tempted, I think, to respond to the culture by curling up in a tight little ball, hoping the danger will pass us by until Jesus comes. At the beginning of this year, our adult Sunday school class focused on training for outreach to our neighbors and to the nations. And one of the exercises that the class engaged in was listing all of the obstacles they saw to, tr- to sharing the gospel of Jesus with those around us. Do you want to know what the number one obstacle was that kept rising to the top again and again, one way or another? The number one obstacle to sharing the gospel of Jesus Fear. Fear of sounding dumb. Fear of social consequences. Fear of suffering. Fear had gripped Christ's disciples and crippled them. On the night that Jesus was arrested, they deserted him and they deserted each other. They split in all sorts of directions. And now they are locked behind closed doors for fear of authorities, the religious authorities. What I'd like you to notice this morning is that it is to these disciples, precisely in that state that the risen Jesus says, I am sending you. And then he gives them the resource that they need for courageous joy to overcome their fear and their frailty to be the community that carries on his mission in the world. By observing and believing what the Lord said to them on that first evening, we can be equipped for the work that He has commissioned His church to do until the end of the age. Here's the mission transforming reality that is revealed in this passage. The risen Jesus has blessed His church with peace and given us His Spirit for His mission in the world. Let me say it again. The risen Jesus has blessed His church with peace and given us His Spirit for his mission in the world. Really quick review. Jesus said, peace be with you twice, not because he's being polite, not because it was just a traditional greeting. It's there twice in the one visit for emphasis. His word of peace was deeply important to his disciples. He had promised them before his arrest and his death that he would give them his peace. And so his announcement of peace after his resurrection vindicated his claim to be able to provide peace. It proved that his promise was true. And the peace that he had promised was what he had been sent to bring as the Messiah, as the Prince of Peace. His peace was the peace of reconciliation with God for guilty sinners and the restoration of creation corrupted by sin. That the risen Jesus said, peace be with you, meant that through the suffering pictured in his hands and his side, and through his resurrection proved by his bodily presence, his followers' sins had been forgiven. God was no longer their enemy, but their father and their friend. And his work of renewing had begun in them. What I want you to notice this morning is that Jesus says, peace be with you again, Notice, right before he sends them into the world, which they would rather keep safely locked on the other side 
of the doors. And I think that's significant because it provides a powerful comfort. As I encounter a world which may be hostile to me, if God is for me, if God is at peace with me and I am at peace with Him, who can be against me? Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 56, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That much is review. The risen Jesus has blessed His church with peace and given us His Spirit for His mission in the world. Well, this morning, what I'd like you to notice from verses 21 to 23 are three things. First, we're going to notice the issuing of the mission. Second, we're going to notice the power for the mission. And third, we're going to notice the nature of the mission. One of the events that sometimes gets lost at the Olympics with all of the emphasis on the 100 meters and the fastest man in the world stuff is that 4 by 100 relay that happens right at the end. I think it's on the last day of the Olympics. And it's always amazing to watch how these people have trained, trained day after day, sometimes for years, simply to do that one thing, to pass the baton. And once it's dropped, it's over. In this passage, the risen Jesus, before He ascends to the Father, as it were, passes the baton to this group of disciples. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, perhaps you'll know that the Gospel of John says much about God's, the Father sending the Son into the world. Not least, of course, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. From love, the Father sent the Son to give life to rebellious creatures shrouded and steeped in darkness so that they might be saved, delivered from God's own judgment. That's one of the central sending themes in the Gospel of John. Another central sending theme in the Gospel is the obedience of the Son who was sent. Again and again, John records that he, who, he, was, he sought the will of Him who sent Him. That he always, John says, did the things that pleased the one who sent him. The son, aware that he was sent, obeyed the one who sent him. And that theme is played repeatedly again and again in the Gospel of John. Yet another sending theme which becomes immediately relevant for our little episode is the fact that the Son was sent with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, John records John the Baptist seeing the Spirit descend on Jesus confirming that He was the Son of God. And that, too, gets worked out through the Gospel of John. Jesus is God's Son who has received the Spirit as the seal and anointing for His mission and His identity as Messiah. Those are actually just a few of the threads that are woven through the Gospel of John as to how and why the Father sent the Son. Out of His love, the Father sent the Son who delighted to obey with the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that darkened, disobedient, death-cursed creatures would be saved. That's God's eternal purpose and plan in the world. And it's those themes that Jesus had taught His disciples as He walked with them and as He taught them. 
And so it's that pattern that should have come to mind when the Lord said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'm sending you out of love, in obedience, with the presence of the Spirit, so that sinners would be saved. The risen Jesus sent his failed and frightened church as the Father had sent him from love into the world so that sinners would be saved through him. Now, to be sure, this is said to the first disciples, to the apostles in a kind of a unique sense. They had a unique position, a unique authority. They were the ones that John will later say in his first letter who witnessed to what they had heard and what they had seen, and this is amazing, touched with their hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. See, the witness of these apostles to Jesus was unique. It was uniquely authoritative. The witness that they bore, the revelation that they received and that they recorded is the foundation and the standard of the faith that the church has been and is being built on. But it is precisely the message about Jesus which is to be taken to the world is which these apostles have recorded for us. Until the end of the age, Jesus said, the church which is built upon the apostles' testimony is sent as the Father sent Jesus. The followers of Christ, the church, remain sent into the world from the love of God that sinners might be saved. The point is this, that as a community committed to apostolic teaching precisely as we are that kind of a community committed to apostolic teaching. We are a sent people. The people who are at peace with God are a sent people, continuing the mission which the Father sent the Son on. And so let me ask you this morning, do you think of yourself, do we think of ourselves that way? As we steward our work Monday to Saturday, as we raise our families, as we enjoy recreation? Do we think of ourselves as a sent people through the Son into the world? Knowing that identity should shape our sense of purpose in the world. It should shape our reaction to strangers and to sinners. It should shape our conversation and our conduct with our neighbors. The church is a sent community. That leads us to our second observation from this passage. We've seen the issuing of the mission. Now would you notice from verse 22, the power for the mission. The power for the mission. Look at verse 22 with me if you would. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Back to the baton. You would want, if you were in that kind of a level of race at the Olympics, to be sure that the person that you were handing the baton to had managed to pick it up several times before and had shown some competency and some ability to actually deliver on the prize and on the goal. The amazing thing about the Savior is that he hands the baton here to people who've done nothing but fail to pick it up. A community which has dropped it time and again and persistently taken their eye off of the goal. And so Jesus gives them here everything they need to be those he has sent. 
It's interesting to notice if your Bible's open, the little word and action pattern that Jesus used with his disciples. In verse 19, he said, peace be with you. And then it tells us when he had said this, he did this. He showed them his hands and his side. Verse 21, he says, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he did this. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. First time, peace shows them the bodily presence. And we say, good, I can see how that would help. That would reassure, that would be, give confidence. What's the benefit of the second thing? That little statement of Jesus toward to his disciples before he was arrested. Do you remember it from last week, John 16, 7? Jesus says the amazing little thing, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The second action in this episode, in this encounter with the disciples, Jesus provided them with their advantage while he was bodily with the Father. In this little encounter, the risen Christ spoke and acted to provide hedgehog-like disciples every advantage they needed for assurance on their mission. You see, the sight of the resurrected body and promised person of the Holy Spirit was what they needed to be that sent people. The one whom he had said would bear witness about him, you remember for our scripture reading, who would be their helper, who would convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, the one who would glorify Christ. I have to say to you this morning that I find this utterly gracious and amazing and I desperately want you to see it for your encouragement in the world. In this one appearance, in what he said and did, Jesus provided his followers with what they needed for the mission that he sent them on. See, the Savior knows our weakness. He knows our fear. And he has not just handed us the baton and said, do your best. He's not sent us in our own strength. He's not sent us in our own wisdom. He's not sent us in our own power. The risen Christ has given the church, the Holy Spirit, to manifest His presence and His power in our midst and on our mission. Now, if you're still awake this morning, you're, of course, noticing at this point that Jesus must have been symbolizing the giving of the Spirit, which would not occur till some days later on the day of Pentecost. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, a couple of reasons. John chapter 7, when Jesus promised the Spirit, John tells us that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus had to be raised and glorified, ascended to the Father before the Spirit could be given. He's not that yet here, not ascended to the Father. Second reason we know this, if you follow the story through from our, on our passage, you don't really see any dramatic change in the disciples at this point. They continue, it says in verse 26, to meet behind closed doors. The whole of chapter 21, it tells us, Peter says, I've had it, I'm going back to fishing. There's not much of a change in the disciples' attitude at this point by the end of the Gospel of John. But then, Jesus did ascend to the Father, and the Holy Spirit did come at Pentecost. And the book of Acts tells us about the amazing transformation in these hedgehog-like disciples. They clearly consistently and courageously testified about Jesus as the Christ, often as they faced opposition, even in front of the authorities that they are now adopting the hedgehog strategy to keep on the other side of closed doors. 
One of the most enlightening and, for me, encouraging little episodes in the book of Acts is found in chapter 4. I won't take the time to read it, but Peter and John are there. They've been arrested after testifying about Jesus. And this comment is made as they witness in front of the authorities. Listen to what's said about these hedgehog-like disciples in Acts 4. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And when these same authorities commanded Peter and John not to speak any more on pain of suffering, Peter, the one who had denied him three times, Peter, the one who wanted to go back to fishing, said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But listen to this. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Disciples were transformed into clear, consistent, courageous witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit symbolized here in this episode transformed cloistered fearful people into courageous witnesses for the risen Christ. Now, an awful lot more could and should be said about the gift of the Spirit to the church. For example, how the apostles' unique position in God's plan meant that they saw Unique manifestations of the Spirit's power, signs and wonders, gifts of tongues and prophecy, which passed with the passing of the apostles. Most importantly to be said is how the apostles themselves and the rest of the New Testament interpret this gift of the Spirit to the church since Pentecost. That since Jesus gave the Spirit, all those who believe in Him have the Spirit. That the gift of the Spirit is now given to each and every one who has faith in the risen Christ. But the point here in this episode, the point in this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus is that the Spirit has been given to the church, please notice, in the context of being sent as the Father sent the Son. But I want you to walk away from what John wants us to walk away from this text with is the realization that the risen Christ has given us the Holy Spirit for the mission He has sent us on. You say, okay, good. Thanks for the theology lesson. How does that help me Monday to Saturday? All sorts of ways. Let me mention a couple. First, as John 16 told us when it was read for us, it is the Spirit who glorifies Christ by taking what is His through the Word and revealing it to us. The Spirit glorifies Christ by illuminating and assuring us of all that Christ has done for us. It is the Spirit who gives us the sense and seals to our hearts the promise of peace with God and all that that entails. Listen to how John Owen, as he commented on that earlier scripture reading, explained this. Owen said this, and this is his work to the end of the world, to bring the promises of Christ to our minds and hearts, to give us comfort, the comfort of them, and the joy and the sweetness of them, much beyond that which the disciples found in them when Christ in his person spoke to them, their gracious influence then being restrained, that as it was said, 
in the dispensation of the Spirit, he might be glorified. See, what Owen is teasing out from the Bible is that the Spirit, as our helper and comforter, reveals to our souls, to the souls of the saints, the blessings of grace which the Father has provided and which the Son has purchased. It is the Spirit who seals to our hearts the love of God, or as Paul puts it, sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts so that we have the sense and persuasion that God is our Father and our friend. It is Him who assures us that we are right with God, that we are His sons and daughters, and that we live and move in this world as those who are at peace with God. Second, but not of secondary importance, it is the Spirit who gives us power on mission. In a very similar passage at the end of Luke's Gospel, if you would just turn over a few pages, I'd like you to hear how Jesus' last words to his disciples are recorded there and how it resonates with what we have in our passage. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Listen to Jesus' words to his disciples. Luke 24, 46, page 885 if you're looking for it. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know the same note is struck in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. The testimony of the Scripture, the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the apostles is that it is the Spirit who provides power to effectively witness to Jesus as the Christ and the power to create new life in darkened, dead, death-cursed sinners. The Holy Spirit is God in our midst as the church to comfort us with the assurance of His love and the pledge of His peace and to provide us with His divine power for world-transforming mission that Christ has sent us on. The power for mission. Third observation, and we'll cover this quickly. We've seen the issuing of the mission. We've seen the power for the mission. Third, notice the nature of the mission. We find it at the end of our episode in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Can you hear there the echo of Jesus' instruction from that little passage that we read in Luke's Gospel? It is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Why did the Father send the Son? Why did Christ have to suffer in Christ's mind? That forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Why did the risen Jesus send the church as the Father has sent Him? To forgive, He says, or to withhold forgiveness? of sins. 
quickly, that tells us a couple of things about the nature of our mission in the world. Please hear this carefully. One, there is such a thing as sin. Contrary to all of our cultural expectation and acceptation, God does have an absolute standard of right and righteousness, and He holds those who break it, who rebel against it, who fail to conform to it as morally guilty before Him. You see, before God, humanity's most fundamental and fatal problem is their violation of His law, sin. The reason God sent His Son was to address that problem. And what that means is this, that while there might be many good ways that the church can display the majesty and the mercy of Christ in the world, civic engagement, social concern, calling for doing justice, the center and the substance of our mission that Christ has sent us for is the forgiveness of sins. Particularly, right now, that needs to be remembered when, with the emergence of new church models which want to emphasize the church primarily as a community of social justice or artistic engagement or community renewal. There's truth there, and perhaps there's some corrective voices that need to be heard But those good things must never eclipse or take center stage from Christ and His church's mission as He defines it here. To provide, to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Atonement, pardon for guilt, and rebellion against God. Loved ones, whatever other expressions of kingdom service Christians or the church might legitimately engage in, this is fundamental. This is in the forefront. We are sent in the name of the Savior to open or close the kingdom through the forgiveness of sins. Here's the other thing that it tells us. It tells us that this mission really is a mission of mercy. We are sent to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Real guilt before God really absolved by God. Real debt toward God really relieved by God because the son that he sent died and rose as a substitute for sinners. And the son sent his disciples to announce and to admit people into the grace of that forgiveness. That's the nature of the church's mission. We must always keep our eye on that goal. As the witness of the apostles is proclaimed and people respond to it in faith or not, we tell them that their sins are forgiven or that they are not. The nature of the church's mission to the end of the age is to proclaim Forgiveness of sins to all who will believe in the Savior. I wonder this morning if you are aware of ways and places in which we or you may have adapted a hedgehog strategy in relationships, in life, in engagement with your world. Here's what you need to know based on this this morning. To uncurl and to embrace the mission for which Christ has sent us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father loves you and has loved you and is at peace with you. 
The Son He has sent has obeyed perfectly for you and has died on the cross for your sins and been raised to give you new and eternal life. And in that resurrection, He has sent the Holy Spirit to empower you, to comfort you, and to equip you for service. It's in the knowledge of that, it's believing that by faith that we can embrace the mission that Christ gave to his church till the end of the age and to live and to work and to fellowship and to worship and to speak and to act as a sent people. Let's pray.